Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brother Cousins podcast. Today, we are continuing our resurrection series for April 2023. This is episode 75. Today, we'll have Jared, Jeffrey, me, and our special return um, official brother cousin guest, Trevor Teal. Trevor, good to have you on the podcast again today. Thanks for uh, inviting me back. Yeah. Well, uh, not a bad run. We really appreciate your insight from last time. Just kind of as a recap, uh, if you have not gone and listened to episode 74, we talked about some of the historical evidence here, tried to answer the questions about if Jesus really lived, if he's a person in history, if he was buried or if he was crucified by the Romans, if he was buried. Today, we're going to kind of take the next logical step and say, if we've established in a very fair-minded a way that tries to establish what the facts really are, not just through faith and not just through what the scripture says, although those are important, but what does the evidence say? Um, we want to tackle first, if Jesus lived, if he was crucified and if he was buried, uh, was the tomb actually empty? And I think it's important to note that we ask this question even before we ask the question of, is he alive after death? We want to just try to establish whether or not the tomb was actually found empty. And then we help to look at the question of if so, and we, you know, you know where we're going with this. We think it was, did credible witnesses actually see Jesus alive after his death? And so that's kind of what we'll talk about in some of the theories uh, that oppose that view and try to look at them again with a fair-minded perspective. So, uh, also, before we get into the, to the meat of this, if you enjoy this podcast, we would so much appreciate if you would give us a like, a share, a review, send a link to someone that you care about who you think would be blessed by the content that we produce here on the Brother Cousins podcast. So without further ado, Trevor, let's talk about that empty tomb. Was the tomb actually empty? And how can we know? What evidence would support that? Um, biblical evidence is fine. Uh, but, you know, are there any extra biblical sources that would lead us to that conclusion? So I'll open it up to you, Trev. Okay, yeah. Um, so I'll just say, you know, we established Jesus did in fact live. He was he was buried. And the location of his tomb was well known. And so we get to, to me, probably some of the most exciting um, evidences, Christian evidences uh, that, I, that we talk about. Uh, the, the resurrection of Jesus really is the heartbeat. Uh, and foundation of the Christian faith without the empty tomb, without the resurrection from the dead, uh, Christianity would have died with Jesus. And so, you know, first Corinthians 15, which is a passage we'll sure be referring to um, throughout our, our time this evening. Uh, basically Paul says there, the resurrection is the, the foundation of the Christian religion. Um, the doctrine of Christ's resurrection and Christianity stand or fall together. And so this really is kind of like the ultimate mic drop, the ultimate proof uh, that, that Jesus you know, gave. He said it was going to be the sign. He predicted you know, that he would rise on the third day uh, from the dead and that it would be the sign, the proof, the ultimate proof, along with the prophecies he had fulfilled, the miracles he performed, the ultimate proof that he was exactly who he claimed to be, that he uh, was God in the flesh. And so we look at the evidence for uh, the empty tomb, you mentioned uh, extra biblical uh, sources. Um, there's a couple that I want to mention uh, as we get into that. Justin Martyr, he was an early Christian writer. We mentioned last time uh, he writing um, around AD 165 uh, records a letter that the Jewish community had been circulating regarding the empty tomb of Christ. And I'll read this quote here. A godless 
in lawless heresy had sprung from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver, whom we crucified, but his disciples stole him by night from the tomb where he was laid when unfastened from the cross and now deceived men by asserting that he has risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. So Justin Martyr there is quoting this letter that was circulating in the Jewish community, which matches what the gospel accounts record as the Jewish explanation for the empty tomb. And while they obviously didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that was the explanation for why the tomb was empty. They at the very least are admitting or recognizing the fact that the tomb was empty. They would have obviously preferred to be able to produce a dead body that would have stopped Christianity before it even got started. And yet they couldn't do it. And the fact that they were writing these alternate explanations for how the tomb got empty, at least confirms that it's a historical fact. We get talk about enemy testimony uh, from, from, from non-Christian sources that admit and recognize that the tomb was empty. Another um, Jewish writing comes to us from the sixth century. Diligent search was made, and he, speaking of Jesus, was not found in the grave where he had been buried. A gardener had taken him from the grave and had brought him into his garden and buried him in the sand over which the waters flowed into the garden. So again, we have multiple non-Christian sources that admit that the tomb was empty. And so the question has never been, was the tomb empty? I believe that's a historical fact admitted by Christian and non-Christian alike. The question is, why is it empty? Um, and so um, that's kind of the, the explanations for the empty tomb. That's where you have uh, divergence. That's where uh, the explanations for how it got empty differ between believers and unbelievers. But I just want us to begin by seeing that uh, the empty tomb was a historical fact recognized by believers and unbelievers uh, alike. Yeah, Trevor, I really like the point that you mentioned that the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is the linchpin of our faith. We covered 1 Corinthians 15 pretty extensively in episode 73, so our listeners can go back and check that out. But Paul asserts in Romans chapter 1, um, and when he starts talking about Jesus in verse 3, he says, Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul definitely links Jesus' resurrection from the dead as a qualifying factor of him being the son of God and, and Lord over death. And so I think that's very important for us to also just acknowledge. It's the way that he he proved that uh, he was God's son. Okay, so Trevor, if we've established um, pretty firmly that the tomb was empty, um, and as you assert, Jesus' disciples did not steal the body, then that leaves the question, you know, how did it get empty? Uh, you know, obviously we've said that the resurrection is the linchpin of our faith, but if someone were to say, all right, if Jesus is alive, then you need to prove it because that normally doesn't happen. So I wasn't there. I didn't see that, but we have documentation that other people who knew him did see him. Uh, and we can produce these records in the gospels and in the book of Acts and from other New Testament writings, but then people would want to try to say, okay, well, are these witnesses credible? Obviously, they love Jesus, and they wanted nothing more for them to be produced alive, and so that their faith could continue. So people would say that they were biased. So the question is, did credible witnesses actually see Jesus alive after his death, or are the documents that we have in the New Testament just a fabrication or wishful thinking? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, that gets into, you know, some things that relate to the evidences that the Bible is, in fact, the inspired word of God. We think about Christian evidences or apologetics, reasons we believe, and um, the kind of three main areas. Does God exist? What's the evidence that, that God exists? And then what's the evidence the Bible is, in fact, God's inspired word? And then is Jesus God's son? And those things kind of dovetail and obviously uh, tie together. And we talk about the evidence for the deity of Christ, the reliability of the Bible and the gospel accounts, the biographies of Jesus obviously are called into question as well. And so those things kind of go hand in hand and you have to, to get into the integrity of the new Testament and, and specifically the integrity of the, the biographies of Jesus, the gospel accounts. And when you look at um, the eyewitnesses to his resurrection and, and those who wrote those biographies were inspired to write those things who were eyewitnesses, um, many of which obviously were the, the apostles or disciples of Christ. Um, when you look at kind of the criteria for are they credible, um, you know, there's different tests people talk about, uh, you know, character tests, the intention test. Do they intend to write exactly what happened? And when you read, you know, like Luke's gospel account and then also uh, the book of Acts, he makes it clear in the prologue and the introduction of the book. And John, the end of his gospel account that they obviously had every intention of documenting what they saw and what they heard exactly as it happened. And that shouldn't surprise us when you see the character of the disciples, the character of their, uh, of their leader of Jesus who had the, the highest moral integrity and taught uh, his followers to be honest, uh, God of truth. And so he called them to that. We're not surprised that they had uh, every intention of telling exactly what happened. And we saw uh, last time we mentioned the concept of, um, the criterion of embarrassment, that basically there are an abundant amount of details throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and the gospel accounts. That's basically what you would call or consider unflattering content. Right. If you're creating a story and you're one of the lead characters, you're one of the disciples, you would, you know, what typically happens, human nature is to make yourself look better than maybe you actually were. And yet the disciples often look uh, dim-witted, uh, selfish, self-centered, clueless. I mean, it's not always a very flattering picture, but they tell the story, the narrative exactly as it happened. And so those details are evidence that it, again, is concerned with telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We talked about. So, first, so Trevor, what you're saying is if they would have been using Instagram, they would have been no filter, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a good modern way of putting that And To me, that's compelling. Yeah. Um, so many examples of, of embarrassing details, things that Jesus said and demanded of, of his followers that wasn't popular, that if you're fabricating a book to get a movement started somehow that's based on, you wouldn't put those hard sayings in there. Um, the fact that Jesus' own family didn't believe initially, they were some of the, the first uh, skeptics or doubters was his own family. You would not put that in there if you're making a story up. That's what happened. Right. Um, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, didn't yeah. believe in him while he was alive. But yet after his crucifixion by the Romans was willing to hazard his life to say that he saw him alive again. Yeah. Became it a seemed, martyr. Yeah. It seems like to, the time to to ride the wave was when Jesus was alive and popular. Right. Yeah. What, uh, and you, and you know, you talk about that being embarrassed, you know, why would his own family not believe? And why would you put that in there? You know, yeah. who, who Jesus entrust the care of his mother to <laughs> not one of the brothers. Yeah. John, that, that that's where they were. You know, like you said, it was after his resurrection um, that, you know, those conversions in his family 
has seemed to happen, at least with, you know, James and some of his brothers. And so the question is, how do you explain, you know, those conversions too, just like with Paul's conversion, but uh, whether it's enemies of Jesus or skeptics or unbelievers from his own family, how do you explain the 180 that you see in those people that are willing, as you mentioned, Josephus writes about James being martyred. And basically the, the explanation is he, he saw Jesus alive post-mortem after his death. Mm-hmm. What, what would it take you, this is the brother uh, cousins podcast. Uh, what would it take to convince you that your brother was a son of God? Sorry, too many childhood memories. <laughs> Jared, do you want to answer that or do you want me to answer that? It would take a resurrection. Yes. Just very simply. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. I had never heard an argument until actually this week that the resurrection is not central to Christian faith. And I don't know. I mean, it, it's obviously very highly academic people that are purporting these ideas and, and I, I don't know that I could com- begin to even comprehend how he comes up with this argument, but that's the change. And, and, you know, we've talked about in our opening episode with our, with you last week, these guys, you see the undeniable and down to the roots change of these guys' lives after the resurrection, after interacting with the bodily resurrected savior of mankind. They were changed when they walked with Jesus, but they still struggled. They they didn't have a, a full grasp of spiritual concepts and what it was he was really here to accomplish. But when he came out of the grave, they were convinced and they were convicted. Yeah, it changed everything. You know, you, you see just such an, a complete 180 within a few days. I mean, they're running for their life. They're in self-preservation mode. They don't understand. Like you, like you said, they... You know, the, the idea of the, the kingdom and the Messiah, whoever hangs on a tree is cursed, the law said. I mean, the, that though those concepts, even though Jesus had kept explaining that or making it clear what he was going to do, they still could not wrap their mind around that. And so to them, when Jesus was crucified by the Romans and hung, cursed by God on a tree, it was over. And, you know, they're hiding in fear. Uh, they're seemingly defeated. And yet within a few days, you know, Peter is preaching to thousands in the same city. This happened. These things happen. That's what's known as the Jerusalem factor. This movement got started right where these things happened, right when they happened, right after the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. You can't, you can't account for that. It wasn't like they went to some distant land and started to tell these stories to get a movement started. It happened where there's, there's adverse witnesses. That's another test. Uh, You talk about their character and all these things. So as the adverse witness test that basically the gospel accounts, the things they were preaching with the central theme or the ultimate uh, message being the resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb. That's the ultimate proof. Um, You had people that were witnesses to those things in Jerusalem that could have challenged that, could have checked that by producing a body and they couldn't do it. Um, That could have corrected them. Well, they're preaching that the tomb's empty, but we're here to tell you it's not. Let's, you know, we'll show, we'll take a 15 minute walk from where Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and show you the body. And they couldn't do that. And the fact that we have evidence that uh, matches what we see in the gospel accounts in terms of their explanation was the disciples stole the body. Again, in my mind, establishes the empty tomb is a historical fact. And then we have to ask the question then if the tomb was empty, what best accounts for the empty tomb? What's the most plausible explanation for how the tomb is empty? And frankly, the 
the Jewish theory that the disciple stole his body is, uh, in, <laughs> to be blunt, uh, absurd in my mind. When you consider um, the process of sealing the tomb, uh, you had a disc-shaped uh, stone that would be rolled in a groove, kind of downhill into place and sealed. The Romans would, would put a seal there basically that was kind of like a no trespassing sign, you, you know, um, fear of death. If you under, can't. under pain of death. Yeah. And guarded by Roman soldiers who were the best soldiers in the world, were um, highly motivated. They didn't carry out their responsibilities or duties. They died. And yet we're to believe that somehow these fishermen who didn't understand even what was happening were running in fear just a few hours earlier, somehow mustered the courage to go roll the stone uphill, which would have caused a lot of commotion, got past the best soldiers in the world for, for what purpose? What, what do they have to gain risking their lives, risking everything to steal Jesus's body? What, what would what would they have accomplished in doing that? What would have motivated them to do that if it was all a fraud, if it was all a lie? How did they get past the Roman soldiers? And if they were asleep, how did they see who stole the body? That's another interesting detail. They said that the they were paid to say that the disciples stole his body, but they were apparently asleep. How can you see who stole the body if you're sleeping? So, again, it's just it's hard to fathom how that is a plausible explanation for how the tomb was empty. Frankly, uh, was it possible for them to have got past the Roman soldiers to do that without waking them up for the Roman soldiers to see while they're sleeping, who stole the body. And there's no motive. There's no motive for them to have done that uh, to perpetuate a hoax, to risk their life for something they knew was a lie. You don't do that. A hoax. They didn't even expect, right. That they were. Right. Yeah. You know, Trevor, to your, your point, the stone was not on a greased lever system. stone on stone that they cut it out and and placed it where they did with workers and then set it to where it could be dropped or rolled into place in a groove and removing that thing was not going to be a quiet process. And it, I mean, you're just, even if they were asleep, these guys were men of war. They, they weren't asleep at the holiday inn and their double queen beds and, and, with their air conditioner, they, these were people that are accustomed to sleeping outside. Again, they were under pain of their own life and stealing the body was penalty of death. I don't know, Trevor, if you saw it, you spoke to the motive of the disciples stealing the body. Did you see the video that the Babylon Bee put out before Easter? No, I didn't. So I'd like, I'd like to hear it. We were, you know, starting this, these episodes and caught one in my email from the Babylon Bee. It was about the disciples stealing the body. And so they, of course, dressed up as the disciples and they're talking about stealing the body. And John, you know, the person playing John is trying to figure out why they're going to do it. And Peter keeps saying, well, I mean, it's a prank. We're going to prank them. And, and John's like, okay, but what's the end of this prank? Peter says, well, they're going to hate us and they're going to kill us. And we're all going to die gruesome deaths. And, you know, everybody's cheering us on. And John's going, I don't know about this, guys. I don't know what we're doing here. Why are we going to steal this body if we're just going to die for it? That's great satire. And it, that nails it. I mean, that's the, that's the absurdity of it. I mean, it, they had nothing to gain. What, where do they gain? What, you know, the, the disciples, you know, if you look at tradition of how they supposedly all were martyred except for John. And even he 
faced obviously persecution. They tried to kill him according to tradition, but just gruesome, gruesome deaths. Why would you, why would you die for something you knew was a hoax or a lie? I mean, uh, liars make bad martyrs. You don't die for things that, you know, I mean, you have to really have conviction to be willing to die for something. And, you know, sometimes people counter and say, well, Muslim terrorists are willing to die for their faith. They have strong convictions. And I would argue there's a difference in that they're basing their conviction, their faith on the testimony of somebody else on the, it's not, they're not eyewitnesses to those things and they're willing to die uh, for their beliefs, but it's not based on what they saw, what they handled, what they touched themselves. The disciples though, were eyewitnesses when they preached the empty tomb, the tomb was empty that they saw Jesus post-mortem. They're not getting that from somebody else. This isn't a legend that developed over hundreds of years. They're saying, I saw it. I heard it. I touched it, touched him. You know, I saw the tomb empty. And so there's a significant difference when you're, you, you know, that's a lie or the truth or not. If you're saying I'm an eyewitness, you know whether that's true or not. You're not basing that on the account of somebody else. So to me, that's a significant difference. And they were all, without exception, willing to die. They did die for that belief. That was the thesis of everything that they were preaching and talking about. And that's all Paul could talk about. When you look at you know, his different epistles and the things that he kept coming back to over and over, here was somebody who converted his conversion, his uh, experience with Jesus post-mortem, Jesus' resurrection was on the road to Damascus to go persecute Christianity. I mean, he was not primed to become a believer. And yet he basically says when he explains his conversion, his 180, which was a significant problem for the Jews. Who have, you know, that's why they wanted to kill Paul, because how do we account for this? How do we explain the greatest opponent of Christianity has now become its greatest uh, proponent? And. Paul's explanation over and over was, I saw Jesus and it changed everything. Yeah. And that's, that's the central message. He talks in 2 Corinthians 11 in different places about all the things. He, what did he get from that? He lost his status in his community. Uh, all the, he, he had nothing to gain financially. The things that he suffered in 2 Corinthians 11, he catalogs the stonings, the beatings, being shipwrecked, imprisoned, eventually, according to tradition, beheaded. Philippians 3 talks about, I suffer the loss of all things and count all things as rubbish or dung that I may know Christ, that I may gain Christ and know him in the power of his resurrection. That's what he came back over to die as gain because of the resurrection. Well, and that's what he does in first Corinthians 15, Trevor. Right. Um, Yeah. I mean, he, he plainly puts that out. He said, you know, why did we face the beast at, at Ephesus? Why do we give up the things that we do? Why do we make the changes that we make as Christians? If Christ did not raise from the dead. Exactly. Yeah. It's... And so those kinds of. Go ahead, Trevor. I was going to say those kind of conversions from his enemies, uh, his skeptics, uh, you know, unbelievers, the disciples, you can't account for those transformations, but by the power of the resurrection, but by those postmortem appearances that Paul writes about. First Corinthians 15, he, he gives names. I mean, he's begging you. They, this is well. These people, he says, are still. Many of them are still living. Go talk. He is fully confident they will confirm that they saw Jesus after his death. That they they are witnesses to his resurrection. And so, you know, he talks about five hundred at once. You know, one of the alternate theories sometimes given is that they hallucinated. And when you do research on hallucinations, it's likely you don't know anybody who has had a legitimate hallucination that wasn't drug induced 
or due to some type of bodily deprivation. They're very rare and usually caused by those types of things. You can't, hallucinations aren't contagious. And so for 500 people, multiple people, different backgrounds to all have the same hallucinate, that's just not possible. And so that's, that's again, another one of those alternate theories people come up with to try to explain how to account for the empty tomb and the appearances that all these people claim to have seen Jesus post-mortem. You can't account for it by hallucinations. Multitudes of people, multiple people don't have the same hallucinations. Well, Trevor, from- I'm, I'm going to insert something here. You know, again, you're, you're an engineer. Um, nobody here is a psychologist. However, there are documents. Um, Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, talks about a, an interview with a psychologist who comes right out and says that not only do multiple people not have the same hallucinations, but the likelihood that over 500 people had the same hallucination, the likelihood is zero. And so right. you don't have to take your word or my word or, or anybody else as non-professionals in this subject matter, but there are professionals who have made claims about this that that just doesn't work as a as a theory that makes a whole lot of sense. Statistically impossible. And, and you look at uh, the disciples and Paul, they weren't primed for hallucinations. They're, when Paul was on the road to Damascus as a Jew trying to preserve Judaism and fight what he thought was heresy, he was not primed to have a hallucination. This, he, that's it's not what he expected, not really what he wanted, kicking against the pricks at that time, but it's what happened. And, and so, again, that's another one of those explanations that just carries no weight. Right. Well, and people tend to hallucinate what they want, you know. And even right. when, when Jesus appears first to the two Marys, they're confused. Like, people were so not expecting to see Jesus after he was dead that when he did talk to them, Often they didn't even recognize him. Now, you could make the case that um, in the resurrected form, Jesus could disguise his identity and did so. We, we have that, you know, recorded in Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus, right? But, I mean, it was so outside of their expectations that they didn't even consider it. Um, so right. they would typically tend to con- hallucinate something they strongly wanted. In this case, this was kind of the gift that they didn't even know they needed. Jared? I was just going to say, and, and outside of their expectations in what they wanted from him, not only that he had come back, but they were still looking for a physical kingdom to be restored to Israel. And his message was completely different. Right. right. And they didn't grasp it again until after his resurrection. Um, Trevor, you brought up the the day of Pentecost and what happened there and, and the compelling evidence that it is. And I know there are people, especially in atheistic circles that will say lack of evidence is not evidence and and claims are not evidence, but you still have the people that would have been devout religious Jews that were willing to travel for religious duties in under Judaism at Jerusalem at the time of his crucifixion back at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And these are the people that could have gone to the tomb and would have been readily accepting of his body was stolen or X, Y, and Z. And and it couldn't be done, and that's why so many were converted. And you know that there were people that went away from hearing Peter talk that weren't converted that went and looked for the body and never found it. We know there were mass conversions after the day of Pentecost. It just continued to happen as people searched for evidence that he was still dead that could not be found. So I would flip that on people that would say lack of evidence is not evidence. Okay, well, then show me the dead body because all you can say is that it doesn't exist. So you right. have the same lack of evidence as I do. We're interpreting the same data and coming to a different conclusion. Right. Yeah. And again, you know, I think it's compelling 
I mentioned the Jerusalem factor is that you have this movement that conquered the world within a, a few years into the very palace of Rome. They turned the world upside down and it got started in the very place. These things happen where it would have been challenged. There's I, I, adverse witnesses and adverse you know, contemporaries there that, that all, again, all you had to do was produce a body. When Peter preached that sermon Acts 2, the Jews knew where the tomb was. I mean, we talked about that last time. Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, took care of the body and the burial. The Jews and the, the guard that was given to guard the tomb, the Jews knew exactly where the tomb was. And if there was a body in that tomb, they would have produced it and they couldn't do it. And the fact that there's alternate explanations for how the tomb came empty again, establish that as a historical fact. And there's just simply no explanations. Once we establish the tomb was empty, there's no explanations for how it got empty that are adequate to explain how it was empty other than the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, even details such as the shroud that we read in the gospel accounts that it was folded neatly. If the body was stolen by robbers, thieves, or even if the disciples came to steal the body, you would not have taken the time to making all that noise to fold it neatly and tidy. You would have been, you would have, the thieves would have stole it, taken it with them for one, but you're not going to fold it nice and neat. Again, there's so many details in the gospel accounts about it that you just, you can't account for, but by the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead, proving that he is the son of God. Right. And, and I don't mean to be gruesome with this, but we're talking about a body that went through a Roman crucifixion. It was destroyed. Yeah. And had been in the grave for a couple of days. Now you're, you're not unwrapping that, taking care of the, the burial clothes you, you want. In fact, you're probably bringing some extras with you to make sure that doesn't get on you. Right. Um, it, it's a mess, but again, we have the, the empty tomb and the, the basis and the change of Christianity that went from people who were running for their lives that were trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to make a living again? I've got to go back to work and Jesus appears to them. And, and I know the biblical account is the place where we have the 500 witnesses, but what we see here is you kind of undo the, the the destruction of the body. If they've stolen it, which again is, is statistically improbable, if not impossible, but okay, they steal the body and then they destroy it. But there is a time delay in which Jesus has seen over a span of time. And so we've talked kind of about the mass formation psychosis, which is improbable as modern, even modern psychology will tell you is not likely. But another theory I've heard is hypnosis. Well, these guys were hypnotized to believe Okay, so you've got hypnotism occurring spontaneously over and over and over again over a span of time in open air, which I don't know, and I'm springing this on you guys kind of last second, but I have been to several hypnotist shows. They used to do one at the FFA alumni camp every year, and I don't know, Jeffrey, if you were at the one where I actually got called on stage I'm very difficult to hypnotize. I I, it, it's never happened. I've had three different hypnotists try on three different occasions, and I don't surrender control easily. <laughs> so um, that's one thing. You have to be impressionable to be right. hypnotized. And these guys, I've talked to them all afterwards, especially the guy at alumni camp, because I had a chance to pull him aside afterwards and said, hey, why didn't this work? And he said, you're, you're not very impressionable. Well, look, that's great, I guess. Um, but you're talking about this happening over and over and over again in front of people who could have said, dude, that wasn't Jesus. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Right. And the, 
again, the, the burden of proof, I get, I get that it's on Christianity because we're saying something has happened that has never happened in history before. But what we can all agree on is we're by and large looking at the same data and we're having to draw conclusions from that. And what we're putting forth is the conclusions of he walked out of that tomb is the best conclusion. Absolutely. And you, you mentioned something, Jared, about the Jews that were in Jerusalem in Acts 2 and many of them converted. To me, that's, an, that's another line of evidence that's compelling. You see changes to uh, key social structures, if you will. Thousands of Jews converting to Christianity, giving up everything that they had been taught, their, everything that they, they, they were and had preserved. You know, you think about the captivities and how other nations or people sometimes died out of time. And the Jews preserved as a people and their traditions because they held to them so, so dearly. You know, we see that in Paul and his zeal because of his convictions. Um, and yet you see thousands of Jews being willing to walk away from that, giving all that up, giving up traditions that were the core of everything that they held dear. Worshiping on Sunday now, you know, the partaking of the Lord's Supper, wow. Christian baptism, all of those things are centered in the resurrection, which tells, again, this wasn't a legend that developed decades, hundreds of years later. We see, you know, we looked at non-Christian sources that talked about these practices, you know, right after the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, this wasn't a later legend from the very beginning. All of this was about this, this central theme, tenant message that the tomb was empty, that Jesus rose from the dead. And, you know, Trevor, that's a line of reasoning I've never heard about. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you think that the Jewish culture and religion had survived in some form over 70 years of exile, oppression, death, deprivation. I mean, the, the largest and most powerful empires in the world couldn't grind the thought of Yahweh from the consciousness of the Jewish people. And yet. Twelve guys saying they saw a dude alive after he had been killed by the Romans did it to thousands of them in a day. Yeah, it's not. Incredible. Yeah, it's not likely. And and thousands go, more in the days that followed. All right. Yeah, yeah. Scores. The the emergence of the Church of Christ within you know twenty years we're told you know gone into the known world into Caesar's palace you know they turned the world upside down conquered the world including eventually even the Roman Empire. Uh, if you will. And how do you explain that? If you're, if you're an objective third party on the moon, alien looking down at, at this and you see all the opposition that Christianity has to get started. You have these fishermen, as you mentioned, Christopher, these 12 men preaching a crucified carpenter uh, who rose from the dead, going up against the Roman empire, the most powerful empires in world history, and also opposition from Judaism. How do you explain Christianity one? A tomb containing corpse can't account for the the origin and the explosive growth of Christianity. Yeah, and it's not like uh, Christianity could be legitimately spread at the point of the sword. I mean, Jesus literally was like, "No, you don't fight." Yeah, they but don't. Down. And he said, "Oh, the people who abuse you and hate you, these Romans, don't don't resist them either, especially not them." Right? I mean, yeah, it, it just doesn't make sense how the Christian faith thrived in the least favorable conditions for a peaceful pacifist religion to begin. It just, yeah, it kind of defies logic. And you account for it by, but by the power of, of the resurrection of the empty tomb. Right. 
the brilliance of God's plan and, and Jesus telling his disciples, you go back into Jerusalem, you stay in Jerusalem. This is where this is going to start mm-hmm. in the least likely place at the least likely time. Not only was this the place where Jesus had been crucified, but this is another high holy day. And and again, Trevor talked about the, the testimony of these people that would have been enemies of the cross have seen things now that they cannot explain and they cannot deny. And that's a theme we see over and over again throughout the New Testament. And you can discount that if you would like to. There's there's plenty of evidences that demonstrate the veracity of the New Testament, the scriptures entirely. But we see a testimony from a Jew, a respected Jew in the New Testament, that warns his compatriots about fighting against this movement. And Gamaliel, and the warning that he gives, we, we saw Thaddeus, we've seen justice, and these people died, and their movement died out. And so we have a testimony there specifically relating to the resurrection of Jesus, because he died, and his movement didn't die out. Why did it not die out? Well, again, now we're back to the resurrection, and the fact that it's the linchpin of God's work. And I, I wonder if Gamaliel looked at his young student and the zeal that Paul had and what Paul was willing to give up. And if that was not a testimony to him, because not only was Paul willing to suffer the way he did, but to give up a life where he was probably going to live in Jerusalem, serve around the synagogue and temple there in Jerusalem, be highly respected, have a pretty cushy life. And and maybe, I mean, he was just set up to live a life on the road where he probably did not have a home that was his own. He lived with and around other people. And on top of that, to know the end he was going to, because it was not kept secret from him. When Jesus spoke to him, he said, these are the things you're going to suffer on my behalf. And, and Paul gives that testimony early, and, and we see him set right to that of being willing to suffer for this thing he was trying so vehemently to put out. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I guess I'm actually getting into episode four a little bit, but. But that's the idea, this this empty tomb and how it roused him to, to move forward the way he did. Yeah. Yeah, that is squarely uh, part four territory. But it's still, I mean, I, I, Jared, I think it is part of the evidence. I mean, it's, it's that hope. You know, we're saved in that hope, the scripture tells us. And really, only the resurrection is sufficient cause for all that to happen. It, you know, we talk about these stories about the resurrection and how that everything hinges on that. And if you think about if this was a hoax, why make the claim that would be the most difficult one to prove? Mm-hmm. You know, these details, as you're, as we've talked about a little bit, this episode in the last one, like the more specific details you give that have to be corroborated to lend veracity to the story, the harder it gets to keep the story straight and make everything jibe but jesus if all he wanted to do was be seen as a great rabbi and bring in a lot of sweeping social change through his preaching and teaching he didn't have to come from the grave to do that i mean the stuff that he preached we know you know we can see that that lines up with the god of the old testament right i mean but the very fact that everything depends on that shows it he didn't have to make it about the resurrection. He could have died and his teaching would still be impactful. But the fact that he made this claim and his apostles 
made it the main thing about all his other teachings, which were pretty important, I think is pretty, uh, you know, it's pretty telling. And and I think that's it, Christopher. You just hit something I've been trying to, to work around and grasp. He was not just a great moral teacher. Right. He was not just a great rabbi. Mm-hmm. He was, is the son of God. The word, the expression of God, the father and the savior of all humanity. And there was no one else that could make a claim to that. And I, I just realized how I would answer if an atheist asked me directly, why does the crucifixion matter to you so much? That's it. He would not suffer his Holy One to see corruption. It's the Pentecost sermon. He would not be left in the grave. Yeah. And the Jews understood, at least some of them, had some grasp of resurrection. They just thought it was an end-time event, that it was going to happen all at once, and everybody would be all at once. Jesus did it way before they were expecting it. Right. But it, it was a proof, the proof, the definitive proof of his messiahship. Yeah. That, that he truly was the son of God. And people acknowledged it before that. We see the Roman soldiers standing before the, the crucifix, looking up at him going, truly, this was the son of God. But there were still people willing to deny and going, no, he's dead. But when he's not dead anymore, after he should still be dead. Okay. Yeah. This, this truly was the son of God. Yeah. And we see that acknowledgement next too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, I'd like to interject, Trevor, you know, when we come to the, the instance of, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. Yeah. It's not like, you know, if Jesus can do this to Lazarus and the son of the widow of Nain and the daughter of Jairus and the servant of the centurion, I mean, Jesus demonstrated in his life that he was victorious over death. And then when Jesus is making the argument to Martha that he can raise Lazarus, she says what you said, Jared, in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus could have said, yep, that's exactly right. But no, verse 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said the resurrection and the life is standing in front of you right now. We don't have to wait for the end of time. It is here. Yeah, that's a great point. And what's amazing, too, when you bring bring up the resurrection of Lazarus, is yet we still read of people who saw the evidence and still refused to believe. Which tells us, you know, sometimes there's no amount of evidence to convince somebody, um, you know, because of free will and things like that. We shouldn't be surprised that even in spite of all the evidence that's that's been given by God uh, and been laid out that we've been discussing, that people will still choose what they believe. And, and still many will choose uh, to refuse to believe in spite of all the evidence that God, God has given us. And, you know, you'll hear some people object to the resurrection because they say that that's never been observed or that that's you know, not scientific or that they just can't believe that was possible. And, you know, I would counter if God, if we establish that God does in fact exist, then why do we think uh, resurrection is, is too hard for God when we consider what everything he's created? If you believe in deity, if you believe in the existence of God, then thinking that a resurrection is possible shouldn't be hard for us. And the other thing I would counter to, you know, somebody who consider himself a naturalist that you know, they don't believe in the supernatural, only what's to be observed, you know, in nature is that there is no such thing as a true naturalist because the naturalist mm-hmm. even believe in things that defy the laws of nature, you know, life coming from non-life, spontaneous generation. If you don't believe in God and special creation, you believe things that are unnatural, that violate the laws of thermodynamics. 
cause and effect to, to account for the origin of the universe and the and, and creation. And so there is no such thing as somebody says, I strictly believe in, in natural things and not the supernatural, because at some point you have to have a supernatural explanation for why we exist, why we're here. And so the, the naturalist isn't consistent is what I'm pointing out when they claim right. that resurrection is impossible. And, you know, if you go a step further and say, okay, you know, spontaneous generation didn't happen. You, you buy into the string theory and in, in the multiverse ideology, mm-hmm. what you've done is you've created circular logic mm-hmm. that right. says we exist because we had to exist and self-awareness exists because it had to exist. And, and you just continue to buy into this, this lie that you have infinitely complicated something that God explains and he is for which he is the only explanation. Right. And yeah. they don't the solve the problem. They move it to an imaginary universe. Right. <laughs> the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings that to a fine tip pin point and sets it in human history to a point where, again, we have recorded dates, recorded names, recorded times, things that are verifiable where we can go and say, this was, this was who was in charge in Rome when this happened. This was who was in charge in Jerusalem when this happened. This was who the chief priest was when this happened. These are the places where these things occurred. And these are the people that were alive when these things happened. And if you're creating myth, you don't do that because you have undone what you were trying to create. You set it in a past that is unverifiable and you create a legend and build off of it. Yeah. Right. Or a distant yeah. planet. The gospel is not a myth. It's history. Yeah. And that's why it was done. You know, if you think about it and and it was written in the language of, of common, you know, it was written in Greek, not Latin. Right. I mean, it was not, not Hebrew. It was written in Greek, the language of the world that we have. And I, I just think it's not a coincidence that Jesus came at the right time where there was actually a study of um, of history. And like there were historians that it was their life study and it was a scholarly discipline to write down things that happened and try to establish the truth of it. You know, uh, if it had happened 100, 200, 300 years before that, we might not have that. So I, I just think yeah. it's pretty incredible. And I want to say something Jared brought up, all the details that are given in the gospel accounts, which to me is is pretty uh, incredible because you're basically inviting scrutiny. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're trying to fabricate a story that's not true, I would avoid giving as many details as possible that can be checked out. And yet you see Luke's a great example of that in his gospel account in the book of Acts because of his writing style, for one, very meticulous. He gives a ton of details, people, places, and things which is, you know, a challenge, basically. Check these things out. I mean, even things uh, seemingly insignificant as topography. When it talks about they went down, well, somebody thinks, well, they were actually going from south to north. What, how, what does he mean they were going down? Well, from a topographical standpoint, that was an accurate statement to say, even though they might have been traveling from the south to the north, they were going from a higher elevation to a lower. So every detail like that, uh you know, when they he fed the thousands and it says the grass was green and it was a time of the year when grass would have been green. I mean, things you wouldn't think to check. But when you check all these details, they check out every time. How do you explain, you know, to err as human that he never made a mistake? That the gospel writers never made a mistake when talking about people, places or things and give so many details that could be checked out. Um, you know, there's a man named Sir William Ramsey in the 1800s uh, who was an archaeologist and historian, and he was actually an unbeliever. And at the time, the book of Acts was considered to be very unreliable. Many people thought that was one of the weak, you know, books of the New Testament that could be, you know, attacked. And so he went 
and, uh, you know, went to uh, Judea and literally sifted through the evidence and all. And he, he basically decided I'm going to look at the book of Acts because Luke gives so many details and it was considered a weak link at the time by skeptics and believers. I'm going to check all these things out. What ended up happening is he became a Christian <laughs> and said that Luke basically never made a mistake. He is a historian of the first rank. And so time and time again, the Bible's archaeological discoveries, which we don't even have time to get into, that time and time again prove over and over the Bible writers, those who wrote the biographies of Jesus and the gospel accounts, never made a mistake, even by accident. How do we account for that? And that, again, goes back to those those eyewitnesses and their accounts are credible, are reliable and can be trusted. Well, it's definitely a, a great faith builder, and it gives me strong consolation that the things that we believe aren't just cunningly devised fables as the scripture says and you know to to kind of put put a finer point on what you said about luke's writing style trevor you know he says in his first in his opening treatise in luke 1 1 he said he wanted to put together an orderly account he wants to put together the record he's building the record and then he starts with not long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's in the days of Herod, king of Judah. I mean, he's saying this is exactly when it happened. And yeah, he's not scant on the details. So this is right. definitely history. So um, so I think we have covered pretty well some of the establishing the the, the uh, factual nature of the things. And if you know, you're not someone, if you're listening out there who believes in the resurrection of Christ, um, there, I would highly recommend that you find a book called The Case for Christ, where Lee Strobel, who is an atheist and a skeptic, again, set to prove, to disprove Jesus, um, and ended up becoming a, a promoter, kind of like Paul, who went from persecutor turned promoter. So it has a lot of these arguments laid out in fine detail through a series of interviews that are very good. Um, you guys have any other books on the resurrection that you'd recommend to someone who wants to read more in depth and do their own study? I think case for Christ is a good one. Um, you've got evidence that demands a verdict, which, which has some information in there as well. So I mentioned a book last episode called the treaties on the physical death of Christ. That would be one that would be a, a really good, good book to look into as well. And yeah, if you're interested, if you're more of a media type person, the son of the guy that wrote evidence that demands a verdict is currently an apologist and he has a YouTube channel in yeah. which he very honestly and, and with some integrity goes through evidences for and against the resurrection. And he actually on occasion will play devil's advocate in some places and, and test and, and work his own faith because like the apostles, he believes that it's, it's worth testing and it's worth putting to the test. If they didn't think so, they wouldn't have recorded near as much as they did. They'd have been a lot more vague where the, the evidences of Christ occurred. Mm. Evidence that demands a verdict was gifted to me many years ago by a mentor. And it's not like a read through book, like the case for Christ. It's very much a reference book. And it, it answers a lot of questions, not only about the, um, death, burial and resurrection, but other apologist bits of uh, philosophy also talks about textual evidence and the reliability of scriptures. So, it's not a book that you're going to sit down and read cover to cover, but I highly recommend it as a book that has a place in anyone's reference library uh, for a variety it's actually of reasons. Pro- Say again? Probably had a couple of updates from the version you have. Yeah, and the one that Sean- I got 20 years ago was new evidence that demands a verdict. I'm sure it's like 
something even more now. <laughs> Sean went through with his dad and, and reworked a bunch of stuff. And yeah, he is still holding on to his faith even after digging through all of that. So kind of like Strobel, you know, he, he put his faith to the test. Now, is it McDowell? Obviously. Yes. Yeah. Sean McDowell. Yeah. Yep. Um, but, Trevor, do you have any? Oh, sorry, Jared. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to kick it over to Trevor. Say, Trevor, is there any books that we haven't mentioned that are kind of mainstays in your library that you'd recommend to our listeners? Yeah, those are all really good. I have all of those in my library. I also really like uh, Apologetics Press for just general, you know, different types of Christian evidences. They cover everything. Um, they have articles on there for free. You can read. They also have a lot of their books they've made available as free PDFs you can download. Nice. For free. I also have a web store to buy books, but I have a lot of their books in my library. I've actually met those guys and, and been there where they're based out in Alabama, but they put out a really good content. So would would recommend them as well. Right on. We'll just back that up. We love Apologetics Press. Tyle was kind of had a bend towards science from the time he was really young. And so I dove in with those guys and, and worked through a bunch of their stuff and had some coworkers, people I've studied with that they were an invaluable resource in going through what they had. But to kind of bring this episode to a wrap, we have gone through and we've dug through these evidences about the crucifixion and resurrection. And I I want to stick on this point of that. It is vital and pivotal to the Christian faith. And that through this, as we started with first Corinthians 15, the resurrection demonstrates Jesus as the son of God. Jesus is the second Adam in whom all of creation is being remade or the, the ideal that God would like to remake creation into the image of. And that Jesus coming out of the grave shows that he is the son of God. And as I have done now throughout this episode and really tried to get into episode four, what we want to look at next week is, is what the resurrection meant to the early church and We'll really look at the Apostle Paul and the way he lived, what he gave up, and and how that changed his life, and how it has that effect today, that it has not lost its potency, though we did not see the resurrected Savior like Paul did. And so that's what we want to get into next week. Toss it over to you guys. Make sure I'm not missing anything as we go to wrap. So as always, guys, appreciate you listening. If this has been beneficial to you. Ask that you give us a, a like or a share, a, a subscribe, give us a rating. As is our custom to do, we'll ask Jeffrey to close us out with a prayer. Our Father in heaven, we humbly come before you and we want to take the time to thank you for your word. Thank you for the transparency, the truth that it offers us. We're thankful most of all for the assurance of our faith, the evidence that you've given us. Lord, we pray that we will live in a way that is that will bring glory to your name, that we will be fair-minded, that we will be loving, we'll be kind, we'll take on the characteristics of Jesus. Lord, we praise you for the gospel facts, that Jesus came and lived on this earth, that he gave his life for our sins, He was buried and that he was raised. We thank you so much for that. We pray that it'll change us. Lord, we pray for all those who may be struggling right now with a lack of faith, with questions, with doubts. Lord, we pray that you will help them in coming to fair conclusions 
and that they will see the truth of your son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.